inaugural Helix Global Panorama from Helix International with me, Philip Geddes. It's my great pleasure to moderate the first of these monthly podcasts, where one of the Helix Medical Security and Crisis Risk Team will be joined by external subject matter specialists to have conversations around current affairs and industry topics and to try and make sense of what these issues mean for organizations. Well, for this week's surprise, surprise, as much as we tried, we couldn't escape the need to talk about the pandemic. And I fear it probably won't be the last episode on COVID either. That said, even if the virus compels us to think about nothing else, I'm at least confident that my two guests today really know what they're talking about and will certainly help shed light on the current uncertainty. So let me introduce my guests. From the Helix side, I'm joined by Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Adrian Heisler, the doc who's been the guru behind Helix's award-winning response to coronavirus. And joining Adrian is Dr. Daryl Vine, Medical Director and CEO of Bluebird. Now, Bluebird is a South African-based company that specializes in technology for health systems. Developed off the back of the HIV-AIDS pandemic in the 1990s, Daryl and his colleagues have been aggregating hospital and infectious disease information in real time for the last two decades. Their extensive experience in integrating health data systems from ICUs to testing laboratories naturally led them to be asked to support the South African Department of Health in tracking coronavirus from the start of the pandemic through to the discovery of and response to the Omicron variant at the end of last year. While the rest of the world was panicking over Omicron, Daryl and his team were living with it and working out how to respond to it. In this episode, we're going to begin by discussing the emergence of Omicron in South Africa, how the events unfolded, how assumptions on coronavirus may have shifted over time. Also, with the advent of the new year, I'm going to ask Adrian and Daryl about the likely trajectory of the pandemic and how governments might respond to it differently. In doing so, we're going to try and paint a picture of what the global COVID response will look like in 2022. So, gentlemen, uh, a very good warm welcome to both of you. Thank you, Philip, and thank you for that very kind introduction. Uh, Daryl, can I just start? It's uh, fantastic to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining. Um, can I kick things off? I seem to remember during the, the, the naive sense of optimism we all felt in the summer, when we thought we might finally be moving on from the pandemic. And then in November, your colleagues in South Africa discovered this new Omicron variant. I guess that you were virtually seeing these cases come through in real time. It seemed to be only literally a, a day or two from the first cases that we got the first analysis of them. Did you feel that same sense of, of panic that the rest of us did? Yeah, so within hours of the discovery, um, there was a combined public meeting with all the big guns, both academically and politically. And to see everyone gathered like that so fast to address the nation made me understand just how concerned everyone was about this virus with the extensive number of mutations that it had and mutations that looked like it might be, be able to escape previous immunity, including vaccine immunity. Very, very quickly, uh, the numbers started to climb, as you've seen everywhere else in the world. I mean, just transmissibility like we've never seen before. 
most recently, I think this week, uh, it was announced this might be the most infectious respiratory virus ever. In other words, more infectious than even measles, which, which has been the sort of yardstick up until now. Um, so watching those numbers climb. So, you know, what, what we do is for both the Department of Health and for, uh, 70 odd hospitals in Southern Africa is we record, uh, every single COVID, uh, positive test done in all the labs in South Africa. And the trajectory of those, of those numbers climbing was astounding. And without knowing how this was going to turn out, it obviously created huge anxiety for us. And that's why, uh, our government announced to the world, um, immediately what was going on in South Africa as a warning. And of course, that had quite a bad effect on our economy because immediately everyone, including the UK, closed their borders to South Africans. Very, very quickly after that, some doctors began reporting anecdotally that the virus seemed milder. I must admit, I was very skeptical. I thought it was way too early to start saying that. Uh, we've got a very young population, in particular the population that was infected early. A lot of them were university students. Also, we'd been hard hit by previous waves, and even though our level of immunization was much lower than it should be at this stage. I think we're still just below 50%. But our previous waves uh, had implied that there was quite a lot of um, immunity. So the thing is, was this uh, this unbelievably terrible virus, which just wasn't um, showing its teeth yet because of the population, because it was summer, and because uh, there was previous immunity, or was the virus actually a little bit milder? It, it seems to be one of those things where uh, the first reaction was, uh, this is going to wipe us all out, and therefore we go for uh, a huge uh, body of countermeasures to deal with it. And then all of a sudden, the discovery that maybe the peaks might come quite quickly, and you would see a dying away effect reasonably quickly. Now, is that what you've seen in South Africa? Yes, correct. So as it turns out, those early you know, family doctors that were saying anecdotally, this doesn't look as bad as we would have expected. That's exactly how it's turned out. And in fact, they've just published in, uh, in the Journal of the American Medical Association. So if, if one looks at that, uh, published by Maslow and, and uh, Richard Friedlander, um, they've shown, uh, and I'll read you the stats just very, very quickly. Um, if you look at patients that, um, receiving oxygen therapy in this wave compared to the first wave, it's 17% compared to 80% the first time around. Those that needed mechanical ventilation, and it's been put on a ventilator, were 1.6% versus 16% in the first wave. Admission to intensive care, 18% versus 42%. The length of stay in hospital, three days versus eight days. And the number of deaths, 27 versus 520. So, you know, that that's really was unbelievably good news. The question was whether that would translate into other populations in a different season, so particularly the UK and, and the US in winter. Yes, because by definition, you have your figures on the number of people who caught the disease pretty quickly. Uh, but Correct. you don't have the figures on their treatment and the success of that treatment until some time later. And certainly looking at it from a European perspective, Europe seems to have sort of grabbed the bad news straight away and said, God, this is the end of the world as we know it. We'll take enormous quantity of measures uh, without waiting for the 
possibly better news that you're talking about of lower numbers of people needing ventilation, shorter hospital stays, less death. I mean, that it, it rather seems though, as if the first set of facts overwhelmed everything else in how people responded. I think that's right. But I think like everything in this epidemic, uh, one's got to prepare for the worst. And then if one's lucky enough to get much better news, well, that's, that's great. Um, I certainly, unlike many of my colleagues in Southern Africa, you know, I think it was absolutely correct that uh, the barriers to flights and things were put up very, very quickly. And although that, that particularly in my part of the world, down in the, in the Western Cape, that caused significant hardship because a lot of um, our economy is based on tourism. But it was absolutely the right thing to do until one understood a little bit more about this virus. As it turns out, I'm very hopeful that this will be the gift that South Africa gives the world because one has got almost what one would have prayed for. One's got a virus that's incredibly transmissible, which means it's very hard for another variant to displace it. And I'm sure we can unpack that a bit later. But a lot of people responded in other parts of the world, saying, oh, well, South Africa's different. They've got a different structure of population. They've got a different type of health service and so on. As, as it turns out, those differences weren't that important. It is the virus. But nobody knew that. And again, I think from a public health perspective, you've got to assume the worst. And there were very big differences in the South African scenario. I mean, most obviously it was in midsummer. Everyone's outdoors. We're not cooped up inside where airborne diseases spread. Uh, it was in a very young population. It was university students that initially got infected. So there were a whole lot of factors that made people wary of saying, listen, this virus is not nearly as pathologic as, as previous variants have been. And again, I think that's absolutely right. Okay. Can I bring in uh, uh, Dr. Adrian Heisler from uh, Helix here? Um, uh, Adrian, you've obviously viewed this from the perspective of, of the rest of the world. Um, and the first reaction, uh, I, I think, as, uh, as Daryl was making clear, was one of panic. Gosh, we've got something big here. And then the second reaction was, ah, but this may be a good way of, as he was saying, squeezing out, squeezing out other variants of the virus. Um, and what is quite interesting here, it seems to me that the, we, we, we've lived for in the world of pandemic modeling, where we, we model the theoretical. And then all of a sudden, we've now got real-world data, which is coming at us really, really quickly. I mean, that's that's changed the game, hasn't it? Yeah, no, I mean, that, that's a that's a really good point. And it's really interesting to listen to Daryl talking from the coalface in, in South Africa and um, explaining the, the way things happened over there and how quickly information was actually dispersed, which was great because we got that information early. The headlines were all, you know, more mutations than any other variant of SARS-CoV-2 and you know that scared everyone that there were so many mutations doesn't necessarily mean that that makes it terrible because sometimes the mutations play against each other um when when you rely on modeling um it, it's all dependent on what what figures are put in and and how it's you put the numbers in and it churns out a graph and I, I think one of the problems with the modeling that happened over here, and there are lots of institutions that do the modeling for the for the SAGE group of scientists that advise the government, is that they assumed that Omicron was going to be the same as Delta in virulence. And it, it certainly seems now that it isn't. And, uh, and I think that's why we had such doomsday scenarios 
which, you know, in, in one way, it's better to think the worst and get a better situation. It does affect the government's action. So you can have more restrictions than are necessary in the end. But it's easier in hindsight to look at these things than it is at the time. And if, if modelers were predicting a rosy outcome and then all hell broke loose, then there'd be other answers to, to look at because that would result in, in people dying in hospitals becoming absolutely packed. So, so modeling is difficult. And, uh, and I, I think what, what was good is that um, certainly over here and, and in, in um, I think Denmark as well, the restrictions were lifted as soon as the information was, was kind of there that, you know, this was not something that, that we had to worry about. I mean, we have to worry about it, but it was a different beast to Delta. And, um, and that there was absolutely no point once Omicron had had become established, which was very fast, in in carrying on with with flight bans, modelling is necessary, but it's only as good as the the data that's put in, and that's on assumptions. And uh, as soon as you can get real world data, it's great. But as Daryl said, it's a bit too late then to to put in place yeah, policies. I, I, I'm suddenly struck by a, a, a comment that I read a couple of days ago, uh, reading an article about the pandemic from Ray Bradbury, the famous uh, science fiction mm. writer and the author of Fahrenheit 451, yeah. uh, who, who, who was asked if uh, he was good at predicting future. He said, I am a preventer of futures, not a predictor of them. <laughs> and I thought myself, that actually is rather a relevant uh, remark for a lot of the unfortunate epidemiologists who've been in the sights of uh, protesters and politicians all around the world uh, mm. for their predictions. I mean, is, is there a lesson from this as to how one uses modelling, how one um, uses predictions in these forms? Yeah, I mean, I, I think when you look back at, at um, modelling and certain numbers stick in your mind, that the, the idea of um, how many cases there are going to be a day, how many hospitalizations are going to be a day. And certain, just before we came out of, you know, Freedom Day, July 19, when all restrictions were lifted in, in this country, um, the, the predictions were absolutely dire as to what was going to happen there. It didn't happen. We carried on for six months at between 25,000 and 45,000 cases a day for six months. And the, the health service coped with that and that was fine from from a public health point of view, and uh, I think that's one of the reasons why we've been able to cope with the Omicron surge as as well as South Africa has done as regards numbers going up and then coming back down because of the innate um, immune um, uh, environment that that engendered, and you know that the Office of National Statistics estimate that ninety five percent of of this kind of the UK do have some immunity to um, SARS CoV two through vaccination or through through disease because we've had such high numbers over a long period of time. South Africa has been different; it's had four very similar peaks that have gone up and down. And the, the Delta peak plateaued a little bit and came down again. But that is very different to the peaks that we've had. And uh, South Africa has been so uniform that it has been interesting. And one thing I just as an aside, I'd like to ask Daryl, if he has a view on, on how beta, which was um, around at the end of 2020, early 2021, didn't get around the world. And yet it was a major peak in South Africa. And, and that's always interested me um, because it, it, it was a 
a variant that evaded um evaded immunity and uh, and could have been a similar peak to alpha or delta around the world. I was wondering if you had any views about that one, Daryl. Yeah, I think that was all very nicely summed up. Yeah, I, you know, the, the take-home message, I think, with these variants is that uh, certain variants outcompete others. Mm. And I think delta happens to us. So we had our, our beta peak. And I remember at that stage, you know, being asked by government, um, we were coming out to our Easter holidays, which is a big travel period. And everyone was worrying about another peak. And I said, listen, we won't get another one until there's another variant. Because my belief was the reason these curves went up and came down so quickly was the virus had run out of firewood. I mean, there was nobody else to infect. It was coming across immunity. Sure. And that, if that's true, it implies that the only way you can get another big wave is to have another variant. And I, I, I was very uh, warning about that very, very early, as, as I was doing with Beta, by the way. But then things started happening in India, and which turned out to be the Delta variant. Mm. And, and that was horrendous. And for the rest of the world to look at that and see bodies floating down the Ganges, and you know, it's easy with hindsight. I mean, what did Yogi Berry say? It's, it's hard to predict the future because it hasn't happened yet. But, um, you know, everyone now turns around and says, oh, it was an overreaction and look what it did to our economy and right, fine. But if it hadn't been an overreaction, where would we have been? Yeah, I, I remember the early days very clearly. And I remember counting the case, counting the numbers to see, would we get as many as SARS-1, as, as Darren just mentioned, would they reach those numbers, which are around about 80,000? Um, and everyone was talking about the herd immunity level, what it was going to be. And, and that was based on what the, the, the R naught number was initially. So how many people you'd spread it, one person spreads it to a naive population that has no previous history of the disease. So that's right at the beginning. And it was always touted at around 65%. And once we reached that level, we would be, be home and free. Um, and I, I, I honestly was always very skeptical about those numbers. And, and as time's gone on, it's crept up and it's crept up. And the, the idea was that with herd immunity, then, then SARS-CoV-2 would go, COVID would go away. And, uh, and that would be it. I think that has been firmly um, knocked out of the ballpark now. And, and we know that this will never go away. And, not just because it, it it spreads so easily as a respiratory virus, but because it spreads to animals. And there are so many reservoirs that that we now know about, whether they're dogs and cats or or gorillas and lions or, or the white-tailed deer in, in America that have, have got a huge percentage of the population has been infected with, with SARS-CoV-2. Um, so it's always going to be around and it's something that we're going to have to get to live with. And you get to a point where, I mean, where we want to get to is this pandemic sort of settles down and it becomes an epidemic in certain countries where they're, they're lagging behind and then it becomes endemic, which means that it's, it, it's a, a regular background disease and, and the, the, the spread and the, the rates of numbers are predictable. So you can get peaks. And I think a lot of people think endemic means that it's really mild and that's not necessarily the case because remember malaria and tuberculosis are both endemic, but in 2020, they, they killed sort of 600,000, one and a half million people respectively. But endemic doesn't mean that it, it doesn't cause 
problems. Flu is endemic and, uh, and that has peaks in the winter months. We, we still have a long way to go before we know where this is going to go and what's going to happen. What we do know is that there will be more variants. And a lot of people predicted when Delta came along, this is the worst it can get. This is this is the this is the the worst that they can throw at us. Then along came Omicron, and and all the all the goalposts changed. There are other variants out there all the time, and, and whether they become variants of concern, we we just don't know. Anyone who predicts they know what's going to happen from now is guessing, really, because you you just can't tell with this with this virus. But it the hope is, and more and more people, including WHO, are are suggesting that we will get to an endemic situation in 2022. And uh, and that's, I think, because we've got lots of other things that have, have helped us towards this um, tackling this um, virus, um, which I, I think we'll, we'll come on to in a bit. But yeah, I, I, I do think that... Um, that we're going to be living with this for sure for a long time. And there are 200 plus respiratory viruses around, and this will become one of them. Daryl, can I just put a point to you? One of the big things that has been a feature of the pandemic and will certainly be an important part of the history of it when they write it is going to be misinformation and how misinformation was fed from one place to another and how uh, scientific information was uh, twisted or warped to suit particular arguments. Um, now, that is seen as something that has a direct impact on whether there is population or whether there is popularity of vaccine or not. And South Africa's country with relatively low uh, levels of vaccination. Do you think the scientific misinformation was playing back uh, to South African citizens and persuading them not to get uh, vaccinated? Well, misinformation, I think, has definitely been a major problem in South Africa and, and in a lot of the world. Um, so there, there are a couple of things I'd like to say about that. The first one is that there was a deliberate attempt by politicians, especially in North America, to tie in their political future to a certain narrative about the coronavirus. And because that had a big meta megaphone, it very quickly spread all over the world. I mean, I was astounded in the early days of the epidemic to bump into people on, on a beachside walk who started saying to me that um, oh, this was all Bill Gates. And, you know, you know, in the middle of nowhere, you're getting people who have been fed a narrative that was just extremely unexpected in my part of the world. So social media obviously amplified that narrative. And I think that there's been a huge price to pay in terms of deaths throughout the world because of that misinformation. So how do you combat that? You know, to me, it seemed really easy. You take your information from reputable medical sources. So when things get published from Cambridge or Oxford or Harvard or Johns Hopkins, it's a, an organization rather than an individual. And that's the best information you'll get at that time. Now, that's not to say it's right. So one of the big problems with a new disease like this is that everyone's trying to work out what's going on in real time. And obviously, mistakes are made and, and bad information, what, what turns out to be bad information, in retrospect, is given out. But that's the nature of the beast. Um, it, it drives me nuts when I see people moaning about information that was given out by WHO or, or, or Dr. Fauci. Or, you know, in the early days, when nobody really knew what the right answer was, that's what science does. It learns and it corrects itself and gets better. But when we, do, we do have this problem, don't we, though, that uh, uh, of 
which I'm expecting to see fairly soon, which is the dog-eat-dog syndrome, where people start getting at each other's analysis in a way and saying, oh, that's been unfairly influenced by this or that or the other. And you, you see it from time to time, experts falling out amongst themselves as to what is the right answer to a particular problem. And thinking if you're running an organization where you may have staff exposed to COVID because they're traveling or because of the way they work or anything else, it's a very, very difficult question to decide where are you going to go to to get your information that's going to be accurate, up to date, uh, and is not going to be biased by the prejudice of one particular scientist or another. Yeah, so I'm not sure I agree with that because, again, it shouldn't be up to individuals making these decisions. They should be consensus statements. I mean, that's the best truth you'll get, even though it might be wrong. So, for instance, when uh, people came out in the early stage of the epidemic and said masks aren't helpful, uh, you know, that turned out to be very wrong. Or when people said it wasn't airborne. But at that point in time, that was the best information. And unless you believe in conspiracy theories, people aren't putting out that inf- reputable organizations aren't putting out that information with intention to mislead people. Yeah. So if you're the head of an organization, you should take your guidance from those reputable medical organizations with the knowledge that they might be wrong. And that's why, you know, normally in medicine, when there's not this urgency to come to decisions, there's this very slow peer-reviewed process where it takes a very long time for medicine to change. Now, obviously, that's when there's a, a pandemic that's destroying lives throughout the world. There's a much more urgency to put out information quicker before you've had a chance to really make sure it's the correct information. But it doesn't change the way it should be. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd absolutely amplify that. I think the the, the rogue scientists... Um, who have got a bigger microphone because they're, they've been in charge of research at Pfizer or they've been at, at reputable establishments and then have these views that their, their ex-colleagues do not understand. Those are very dangerous people. But there is a uh, there is very much an issue now. I think particularly I'm thinking of Western Europe, North America, uh, places where the, the, the pandemic's been around for a long time. There's a pandemic weariness. People don't want any more bright new ideas of how this is going to be solved or that's going to be solved. They just say, look, we just want to get on with it. We want to live with it. And we want to live with it in a way that's tolerable. Um, is that doable? And are there any particular treatments, do you think, Adrian, that might uh, be relevant here and that are going to be important in the future? Um, well, I, I think th- there is absolutely that that drive around the world that people are weary and people want to move on. Um, I think South Africa are, are, are formulating a plan to come out of of restrictions and to move to an endemic situation. I I think that's right, Dara, but you can jump in if you don't think that's right. Spain have certainly suggested to the European Union that they need to start formulating a way out now. And and I think in in this country, we'll be going in the next few weeks back to a situation where there are very few fitting restrictions. And I think this is this is the way the way things need to go. I think treatments have had it well are are one of the last pieces in the jigsaw. And I think the the advances recently have been absolutely fantastic. And we've had we, we need treatments for people who are vulnerable before they go to hospital. And and up to now, we've had monoclonal antibodies, which need injections, IV or injections, and they need to be in a 
in a um, healthcare facility. They're very expensive, but they're very effective until now. Now, at the moment, there's only one monoclonal antibody treatment. It's an intravenous treatment that will prevent, prevent the majority of people going to severe disease, those vulnerable people. Um, there's one long-acting monoclonal antibody that will last for six months that will stop people who haven't, haven't had a response to the vaccines because of their underlying conditions to have a, a good degree of immunity against COVID. And more importantly, there are two, well, two, there are possibly three now, oral formulations, um, in particular, Pfizer's tablet, Paxlovid, which is an antiviral, which is given within five days of a positive test. So you've got to test and get the results back early, and then they can be given this medication. The, the, the results from, from their phase three trials on, have shown it's 90% effective in preventing severe disease, so in preventing hospitalization, which is fantastic. And, and again, I, I think that is as remarkable as the initial um, data that came out from the mRNA vaccines. And I think when, when we've got the treatments, we can start to say that people who, who are susceptible to severe disease, that those in the risk groups, whether they're over 65 or have other underlying conditions, are able to, to test early. If they get a positive test, then they can be put on an oral medication for five days that will very, very much reduce their chance of going to hospital. Adrian, can we look ahead to the, the, the coming year in 2022? Um, what measures do you think are going to be around in the vaccine, certainly in the vaccination area of next year? And are they going to stay with us for a very long time? Yeah, I mean, I think this is really important at the moment. Um, We've we've had the primary course of vaccines, which have been set at, at two vaccines initially, um, and and now we've introduced a, a booster program um, that has gone very well, especially with Omicron. I know WHO were very keen to spread vaccines around rather than booster doses, which was certainly the the, the way that things should happen in the world. I think now the the thinking is is that those shouldn't be called boosters anymore. It should be a three course prime vaccine. So you have three three vaccines, whether they're spread apart by three weeks initially or four weeks, or whether that should be nearer three months and then six months is, is yet to be um, clearly defined. But I think the, the idea that because your antibodies wear off, go down after three months, and you become more susceptible to infection, that's not a reason to go to a fourth dose and then a fifth dose because antibodies will always go down. You can't have your blood full of antibodies for all the diseases that your body recognizes as, is ready to, to attack. But what is also important is that you've got a background immune system, the T cells, which actually attack the cells that are infected by virus and prevent the virus replicating. So that T cell response is what it seems prevents severe disease. So you're not preventing infection initially, the antibodies wear off, but you have memory of those antibodies, so they can be, they can be brought out pretty quickly. But if we keep going to measuring antibodies and saying they decline, we'll need a fourth dose. I think that's, that's just gonna carry on getting more and more boosters. Now, possibly people who are vulnerable We'll need to get a regular dose maybe every year, like your flu vaccine. That's that's certainly a possibility. I don't think 
that someone without risk is going to have to keep getting boosted. We, our boosting will come, hopefully, from regular infections with a mild variant of, of this disease. But I, I really don't think that carrying on giving boosters to people who are not vulnerable is, is the right policy at all. And th- there are many things we don't know. It's so much safer to get vaccinated. You can get Omicron as well once you've been vaccinated or before you've been vaccinated. And that only broadens the immunity that we have in our bodies. The, the, the body takes the virus and it takes it to its, to its factories and takes it apart and then increases its its defences against that virus. So your immunity is getting better as time goes on, but a combination of vaccination and mild infection is is ideal. Um, Just infection, we we really don't know how good that immunity is going to be. Can I put a point to to, to you, Daryl? You've been very quick in picking up on new infections, new diseases, um, with with the techniques you've been using, what's the next one you think you're going to be looking for? What's the next area of worry that you have? Is it likely to be a, a respiratory disease? Um, so, firstly, I just want to uh, concur with with Adrian. I think that was incredibly well articulated. I support everything that he said. Um, so, yes, I think it likely will be a respiratory disease again. If you think of things like Ebola that aren't respiratory diseases, uh, they don't have the same sort of impacts. You know, with a respiratory um, epidemic, somebody's just got a cough in a, a plane terminal and the disease spreads much more rapidly than non-respiratory viruses. My worry is if you look at the time period between SARS-1, which was 2002, MERS, which was 2012, and then SARS-2, which although we talk about 2019, it really, really got going in 2020. But even at that, you can see an acceleration in pace. If you then include uh, influenza, then you look at 1918, 1957, 1968, 2002, 2009, 2012, 2020. So you can see it's getting more and more compressed. It's very, very likely that there's going to be another respiratory um, epidemic slash pandemic within the next 10 years. And I, I would think the odds of that are at least 50, 50%. Let me, let me put, a, put a question to both of you to finish off that finish off our fascinating conversation today. Um, looking in the rearview mirror, pandemic behind us, what will we have learned? What, what will we be a positive lesson from it? Um, and have you got a, a sort of New Year's resolution that arises out of looking in that rearview mirror? Um, Adrian, start with you. Um, I think I think what what would be well what needs to happen what would be fantastic to happen and is already in starting to get in place is that that vaccine manufacturing spreads around the world and and i know that um in south africa that's the um the process is already in place there i think other countries like senegal like ghana for instance that Africa needs to produce its own vaccines. And I think WHO needs to be really proactive in in, in pushing this forward, which they are doing. And I think that is going to be one of the great things that will come out of this this pandemic. Um, And as as regards what I'm hoping to do, I'm hoping to enjoy travel again. That that, that's the thing that I've I've really missed throughout this and uh, and really make the most of of travel once once we're allowed to to do that. And it becomes a, a normal thing again. 
I, I think we've learned an immense amount in the last two or three years, both in vaccines and in therapeutics directed at viruses. I think early warning systems, so, you know, obviously I'm, I'm coming from this place, but IT systems can very rapidly know exactly what's happening out in the field. I think again, we've, we've come a long way or most of the world's come a long way in the last two years. And, um, and my wish is really, I think this has just taught us that spending time with family and friends is, is, is very precious. You know, one of the, one of the, Best things for me that came out of this epidemic was uh, being locked up with with my kids for the first time in about ten years, and having time with family. So that although we were all working very hard, we were doing it from inside inside a house, and uh, and it showed how precious that that time is. Well, I think that's a very uh, a nice and a rather hopeful message. Uh, so can I thank you both, Dr. Adrian Heiser from Helix, and Dr. Daryl Vaughan from Bluebird. Um, a very stimulating chat and thank you very much also to all our listeners who have joined us you've been listening to the helix global panorama podcast series by helix the views expressed in this episode are those of the guests themselves and do not necessarily represent the official position of helix for more information on health crisis and risk management services be sure to visit our website at www.helix.com. Don't forget to hit subscribe to stay up to date with our latest episodes.